you're looking to change things up in your classroom. You'd like to see more student participation and interest, or you really need a better way to tap into each student's individual abilities. Maybe you're happy with everything in your classroom and you're just that teacher who will stop at nothing to provide the very best opportunities for your students so you're always open to hear more good news. Well, let me personally welcome you to the Student-Centered Science Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Carosis. I'm a secondary science teacher with 11 years experience teaching at-risk students in a distance learning cyber model. And yet, I've realized success in my efforts to plan for and execute student-centered learning. See, I believe that a science teacher's job goes beyond transferring specific content knowledge. Rather, I believe our duty is to prepare students for life beyond our walls, to help develop them into informed, active members of society who can confidently make all kinds of decisions. So on this podcast, our discussions will focus on strategies to promote active learning in the classroom and their outcomes, as well as creating and nurturing a culture that enables students to take ownership of their learning by planning next steps and implementing our feedback. Here, we believe that our classrooms are learning laboratories, not just for students, but also for teachers. You'll always get encouragement to keep on experimenting because what you do and how you do it matters. Let's jump into today's topic. Learning intentions and success criteria. That's what I'm bringing you today as the second installment of this Effective Elements in Interactive Science Lessons series. Are you thinking, ew? (laughs) Because if so, I'm right there with you. I'd be totally lying to tell you this is my favorite of the five elements I use or that I was hardly waiting to bring you the details on this. Uh, Maybe you're thinking, I know I need to share standards with my students. I'll just pass on this episode and listen in next week. The truth is, today's topic is not exciting. It is not innovative, I don't think. And perhaps most importantly, it's not just standards. But it is the glue that holds all the other elements of my framework together. Though this is the second element of my lessons that students encounter in the classroom, it's the very first I prepare as I begin to plan a new lesson. For me, it's a springboard that launches me into true backward design. So if you're new here and you'd like to learn more about the first element of my lessons, be sure to check out episode six where I described review and preview as a warm-up activity that activates and integrates prior knowledge as soon as students enter my classroom. And if you're listening to this podcast like I listen to podcasts, you're probably multitasking right now. I totally get it. This information is too important, though, to take in without making some notes. So be sure to download that free guide I've prepared for you, which outlines all five elements of effective interactive science lessons for student-centered learning. And because it provides tips for building each of them yourself. And those tips are really kind of shortened and always different from the tips and the examples I'm giving you here in the podcast. It's really a functional set of notes for this entire series you'll actually use if you're thinking about making some student-centered choices for your classroom. You can get that guide on my website at www.labineverylesson.com slash the number five, the word elements. So backslash five elements. One more time real quick, www.lab.lab, N-I-N, every, E-V-E-R-Y, lesson, L-E-S-S-O-N, dot com, slash, the number five, E-L-E-M-E-N-T-S, elements. Okay, learning intentions and success criteria. So, many of the five elements I use in my lessons now were not part of my routine in years past. But simple as it is, the addition of learning intentions and success criteria might in fact be the most profound addition I've made. 
And the suggestion for their use came entirely from that text. I just love, love, love Visible Learning for Science, What Works to Optimize Student Learning by John Almerode, Douglas Fisher, Nancy Frey, and John Hattie. So while I've spent a few of my earliest episodes of this podcast highlighting the most profound messages I extracted from that book, I've saved some golden nuggets for context-based discussions like this one. And for those of you out there who think, man, she talks about visible learning like it's her Bible, and she must really get a kickback on this, I absolutely definitely do not. (laughs) So I am really just bringing it to you as a representation of my story and my experience. And as I go on to read other texts and get other insight, I totally plan to share those with you too. Uh, But for right now, this is just my fave. It's part of my story and it's part of my method and it's part of my formula and so it's part of me. So in case you are wondering about that, just wanted to clear the air there. Throughout the last few episodes, I've been referring to effect size and how I chose instructional strategies with very high effect sizes on which to build my student-centered science approach. Remember, an acceptable effect size is 0.4. That gives us one year worth of learning. And high effect sizes would be anything above that. I think the highest list in the visible learning text was around 1.5. One of the foundational strategies I wanted to exploit if you recall, if you've been following along, was the expectation piece. In the text, teacher expectations are listed with an effect size of 0.4. So it's like exactly where we want to be. While teacher clarity is listed with an effect size of 0.75. And that says to me that clearly conveying my expectations to students is nearly twice as effective and impactful as simply having those expectations for a lesson or a day or a student or a group. I can have the very best intentions as the teacher planning and delivering the lesson, but if I don't communicate those ideas well, I can't possibly get that next critical piece, student expectations of themselves, which has a whopping 1.44 effect size, which we are heading for four four times a year's worth of learning in that number, if it's real and true, if the research reflects what we trust it reflects, right? So can students have high expectations of themselves without knowing what they need to do? Sure. You know, we have self-confidence. We have students that are naturally inclined to that in a very general context. But when we're planning a lesson, with specific content, specific skills that need to be mastered, we need to consider that our students' expectations of their performance with that specific content and those specific skills will play a role in their outcomes. So where in the visible learning text, the authors provide the heading teacher clarity, quote, teacher clarity, to describe the nature and importance of learning intentions and success criteria, This is on page 31, if you've got the book. They really are, in my opinion, working to help us understand our critical role in setting the stage for learning. Now, again, if you've been following along with me, you know a little something about my perspective on student-centered learning. In my student-centered classroom, I'm a game show host. I'm a variety show host. I can be slick and cool or funny and witty. I can have a certain style and pizzazz that attracts audiences, but the show isn't about me at all. My job is to plan it all out, to introduce the cast of characters, and maybe provide some context, but I'm not the star of the show. For me, I might as well shout, students, take it away, because that's what I have them do. But without knowing what they need to do, why they need to do it, and how they'll demonstrate or know for themselves that they've learned it. They really can't step out on that stage, can they? And that's what our learning intentions and success criteria should provide. One, information about what students are going to learn. Two, 
some reasons or context that provides relevance. Why are they, are they learning this? And three, how will they know and how I know they've learned it? While I present both the learning intentions and success criteria to my students at the same time, on the same screen, I'm going to speak about them to you separately here to emphasize their unique purposes and functions in your lessons. But since learning intentions and success criteria are intimately related, it's difficult to provide meaningful examples and discuss them separately. So I'll share some examples of them together at the end so we can consider how they work together and play off each other. For now, I'll start with an explanation of learning intentions. Clearly articulating the learning goals of a lesson has an effect size of 0.5, according to the authors of Visible Learning. And we all probably write down or somehow express learning goals for each lesson to our students. I had been doing this for years. Sometimes I shared a list of, quote, big ideas. Or I presented a, quote, essential question. And these were things I played with, like, not on the daily, but like I would change year over year. So one year big idea, one year essential question. I was just never happy somewhere because I didn't really know. There was all these options out there, right? Other times it was totally based on what was being requested by my admin in a given year. Sometimes I had to just list the standard related to the lesson. So if you're already doing this, that's awesome. Remember, effect size of 0.5 is one year worth of learning. It's what we need to achieve. But clarity is what we're really after. How well are the students receiving and understanding that statement or question or standard number or bullet list you're presenting to them? I use Pennsylvania state standards to guide my work. Uh, my school is a Pennsylvania state school. I live and work in Pennsylvania. <laughs> they guide my work. Pennsylvania hasn't yet adopted the use of next generation science standards. So I'm not as familiar with those or the way they're written. I'd say that many of the chemistry standards I'm aligned to are fairly clear. But only once you've learned chemistry. For a student who knows nothing about chemistry to read them, though, I'm thinking it's probably just a bunch of babble. My content's full of really specific technical terminology, and it'd be very difficult for them to understand much of it. Then, although they are clear for me because I understand the terminology and the concepts already, they are still confusing in so much as a single standard sometimes contains concepts we'll teach over three different units. They are seriously jam-packed full. I want to say we have maybe five chemistry standards in Pennsylvania. <laughs> like, imagine that, right? An entire year of chem, five standards. And you're going to list those every day, right? And that's PA. Like I said, I'm unfamiliar with many other standards, and yours may or may not be clear to students. But it's essential that what you're conveying in your learning intentions is clear. So learning intentions are so much more than standards. They really need to be. And this is where your professional expertise can shine. If you know your content and you know how to read and interpret standards, you can decipher them and transform them into really useful information for your students to use. Now, as a quick aside and personal commentary, I just have to say that this is another one of those areas on this in this visible learning text where the authors just hooked me. I mean, birds of a feather flock together, right? That's kind of the premise here. They specifically write, quote, there have been far too many misguided efforts that have mandated teachers to post the standards on the wall. In too many cases, the standards are not understandable to students, end quote. When I first read this text, Sitting out in my anti-gravity lounge chair. It's the summer of 2018. My kids are probably splashing in their inflatable pool. I could probably be heard like five houses away shouting, Amen! Because for years at my school, we were required 
to list the standard on our screen at the beginning of our lesson. I never agreed with it. I truly felt it did more to confuse students than help them. No one ever explained to me how it was the best practice. They just told me to do it. And I'm sure we all experience that in different ways and shapes. If there's one thing that rubs me the wrong way, it's being told to do something without good reason for doing it. You want to back it up? Coolio. And that's kind of what I hope that in conveying to you these ideas and methods and approaches that I use, I am adequately giving you some support for the why. Because I have been convinced of the why, and that's what I want to share with you. I feel like the world needs to know this. <laughs> well, no one said anything when I removed those standard labels for the last few years, but it sounds like it's making a big bad return to our classrooms this year. So yay. And of course, that is soaked in sarcasm. But in all seriousness, this is just a formality, right? I'll stick it on my screen because, you know, for if you're a newbie here, you may or may not know that I'm a cyber school teacher. Yeah, I'm coming at you with all this fancy <laughs> lesson planning. And yeah, I teach cyber school. Uh, so my students see a screen. They don't see a whiteboard or chalkboard. And I don't hand out physical pieces of paper. But my learning intentions, my success criteria are on my screen. You better believe that my clearly articulated learning intentions will be listed right there along with the standard number and the standard wordage. So this is a good time to mention that every instructional strategy can be altered to fit nicely into whatever required lesson plan format or random guidance you're given by your principal in your district. Or if you work in a, in a private school, you know, whatever your administration is. I remind myself often that as long as I'm making decisions in the best interests of my students, well-being and their long-term learning, there's nothing I need to omit from my own design. So if you've been out there listening and thinking, this isn't going to fly in my school for insert reason here, I'd challenge you to rethink that limiting belief. We are the boots on the ground. We know our classrooms and our content and our students the best. Don't ever underestimate your impact. And you're here listening to me, learning how to do it better. So, I mean, really, you are among the best, in my opinion. But back to learning intentions. Learning intentions are more than standards. They're based in standards. We shouldn't be making up our own ideas of what students should be learning, of course. But... We're transforming those standards to be easily understood by students. Very simply, I'd encourage you to write your learning intentions in a way that answers these two questions. Now we're just learning intentions. Number one, what are the students learning? And two, why are they learning it? Answers to both these questions might come from the standards. If you're teaching a course like chemistry or physics or math, which compounds over time, or if you're teaching a series of very closely related content, you know, it's very cumulative. To learn tomorrow's lesson, you would need to have successfully interacted with today's lesson. In these cases, the learning intentions might be the same for each day in the series. I have a covalent compound series of lessons. It's the final unit in my first semester. And the sequence of those lessons goes Lewis structures, so the two-dimensional shape of the molecule, followed by Vesper theory and three-dimensional molecular shapes, so what do they look like in space and time, followed by bond polarity, uh, electronegativity, then bond polarity, and then molecular polarity, <laughs> and then eventually I arrive at intermolecular forces with this concept of like dissolves like. So if you're a chemistry teacher, this example, you got it, it rings true for you, and it's quite perfect to illustrate what I'm trying to describe about learning intentions basically repeating or the potential for them to repeat on the daily. For those of you who are not specialized in chemistry, you would need to understand that intermolecular forces 
and like dissolves like rely on an understanding about molecular polarity. And that can't be understood without considering molecule shape and bond polarity, which doesn't exist without a difference in electronegativity. So each day leads to the next, but they all ultimately lead to the big question of the entire unit, which is why do covalent compounds have such inconsistent properties, especially as it relates to dissolving things, you know, sugar and salt, for example, compared to butter and salt is something I use with my students. But so in that series of lessons, my learning intention, at least one of the bullet points, is the same throughout because the end goal, the why, is about understanding like dissolves like. The why is not just for that day. The why is not just for tomorrow's lesson. It's for the long term, the end game. Okay, it might, and that might not be the only learning intention, but there is at least one that is repeated. Now, in that series, while the learning intentions repeat mostly throughout that unit, they appear very different, very disconnected and distinct in the first unit I deliver to my students. The first unit I deliver is an introductory unit intended for something entirely different. By the time I'm teaching covalent compounds and like dissolves like, we're at the end of semester one. We're in mid-year. Students are totally like in a two-in-it. Maybe. Maybe. I'll just leave that hanging there. Um, but in the beginning of the year, obviously, the introductory unit is intended to not only teach concepts, but to also acclimate students to a student-centered environment where they run the show. It's also a period of time intended to allow them to adjust to the technology I lean heavily on in my curriculum as a means of providing meaningful learning experiences which I'll talk about next week. In this introductory unit, there's a wide mix of chemistry content, but it's really representative of just two overarching themes in the course, matter and energy. Since each lesson in the unit was designed to plant the seed of prior knowledge to be called upon later in the course and a spiraled effect, most of the learning intentions on each day are completely new and unrelated. So it can go either way. Right, just trying to demonstrate that for you. Now, when I'm writing learning intentions, the format I have adopted came directly from the visible learning text. They always take the form, quote, today I am learning blank, so I can, colon. And then I make a short list. I provide a short bulleted list because my lessons are rarely one dimensional, if only based solely on the cumulative nature of the content. You know, sometimes making sense of what we've already studied or setting you up for what's to come. Not every content's going to do that. Maybe you can finish that statement and period at the end. You know, no bulleted list. Today I'm learning blank, so I can blank, period. The what of my learning intention lives in the blank space. And both, usually the what and the why, live in my short bulleted list. I'm hardly waiting to share with you some examples, but now's a good time to talk success criteria. The authors of Visible Learning write, quote, Most critically, the learning intention should demonstrably lead to the criteria of success. This is where we let the students know what we need them to do, what tasks they will complete or will be able to complete once they've accomplished the learning intentions. Now, going back to the fundamentals of visible learning, if you've been following along, and if you haven't, of course, I'd encourage you to go back and brush up on the last few episodes. The success criteria that we're talking about here are going to directly foster three things. Our students' ability to, number one, be active in their learning, because they've got something meaningful to do. Two, be capable of planning next steps in their learning, especially if they're able to move through a series of success criteria in the time provided at their own pace. And number three, be able to use feedback because our feedback during instructional time should be focused entirely on their progress 
toward the success criteria we've listed. Their progress toward the doing, which directly connects to the learning intentions, which are the goals they need to achieve over that entire period. So if I were to differentiate learning intentions from success criteria, I'd say it's in the success criteria that our depth of knowledge verbs, as it pertains to my lab and every lesson approach, the scientific method verbs, success criteria is where these live. So learning intentions, mostly standards-based, success criteria verbs, the doing. Things like observe, record, analyze, communicate, construct, explain, describe, list, calculate, order, determine, the list goes on and on. Some of these success criteria verbs will also reflect the students, the skills students must hone prior to completing summative assessments, like unit tests. So the success criteria should tie directly into necessary skill practice as well. So in my mind, success criteria is all in the doing, and it's specific to that period. In my practice, success criteria outlines what students will do in class each day to move toward accomplishing those learning goals, those learning intentions, and what they will do on quizzes and tests. Because the final element in each of my lessons requires that they practice those skills during class time as well. In this way, I found that creating this daily success criteria list was super helpful to me in preparing reviews prior to tests. Can I tell you how much I hate to prepare reviews? <laughs> I hate reviews. They are just the bane of my existence. I always, and you know what it is, why? Because I can't do anything with them. I just feel like I'm studying with them and that feels so redundant, but I digress. <laughs> when it comes time to prepare reviews and study materials, I ended up merely copying and pasting all the success criteria from all my lessons in a unit into one document and then selectively removing only those skills that pertain to specific activities during class. And they were usually the scientific method-like skills that I reinforce every class period but aren't necessarily reflected on the test. Then I could share that list with students. I could post it for them. And it's a comprehensive list from which they could study and practice to prepare for each exam. So that's been awesome. The format for success criteria I've adopted also came from the visible learning text. I really did lean on them heavily. Like I said, this was not something I ever did before visible learning came into my life. And when I read it, I was like, aha, I have found a a fantastic, meaningful way of transforming this awful practice of listing standards on the screen. So my success criteria always take the form, quote, I'll know I'm successful when, colon, and I provide another bulleted list. Often this bulleted list is much longer than my learning intention list. Remember, my goal is to keep students active and engaged in their learning and so it's my feeling that they should be doing a lot to learn only a few things, but to learn them deeply and completely. So let's get to some examples. Yay. The very first lesson I teach in my year of chemistry is called Why Study Chemistry in High School? Honestly, I'm not really sure there is a standard associated with this content, but it's important to me as their teacher to address what every student might be thinking to themselves. You know, it's the elephant in the room. It's relevance. Why do I need to take chemistry anyway? Because so few of my students are even college bound. My why in teaching this lesson is to provide an introduction, an overview of the course content for the year, something to become familiar with what they'll be exposed to in terms of content throughout the year. You know, this is what the class looks like, not just in daily practice, but also content. All right, here's my learning intention and success criteria pairing outline for that lesson. 
Learning intention first says, today I am learning about the scope of chemistry as a discipline so I can. One, talk like a chemist. Two, understand the type of information I'll be learning in this class. Three, recognize how chemistry impacts society. And now for the success criteria. I'll know I'm successful when I can. Define terms on the word wall. Match different types of chemistry to their uses. And three, explain how chemistry is critical to medicine, agriculture, material development, and the environment. So let's dissect this a little bit. <laughs> That's a lot, especially if you're listening. And, you know, for me, like I'm not even good with e-reading. I like like to print stuff out on paper. And I, like, it's like if my eyes see it a certain way, it's branded on my brain. I don't know. But I'm sure it's difficult to listen to that and then analyze it. So I'll dissect it for you a little bit. The what in this lesson is the scope of chemistry as a discipline. And it's included in my opening statement. Today I am learning uh, so I can, right? Today I am learning the scope of chemistry as a discipline so I can. And the whys are listed beneath, as I had described would be. The first of those whys is an intention you'll see listed in nearly all of my lessons. If there's new vocabulary for me to introduce, this talk like a chemist piece is always on my intention list, even though there isn't a standard outside of common core literacy that deals with learning a bunch of chemistry terms. The inclusion of that intention, I feel, lets students know it's about clarity, right? I'm being clear that they will be writing, they will be talking, they will be communicating with some new language with which they probably aren't yet familiar. I firmly believe this should be in everyone's learning intention list all the time, no matter the course. Each content area brings with it specific, deliberate vocabulary, and if our goal as educators is not to produce content experts, but to produce people who can make informed decisions in the real world, being able to decipher and use sophisticated or contextual terminology, this really is important to communicate to them as an ongoing expectation, one which they need to adapt for themselves. Remember how important it is to have them with high expectations of themselves? We're connecting the pieces now. Okay, moving on. Another day I'll speak in detail to the unique sequence of lessons in my introductory chemistry unit I call pervasive principles and how the remainder of my first semester content unfolds because of the time it takes to accomplish that set of lessons. However, I will mention now that it's exceedingly important to me to generate buy-in and create consistency for my students. I have written a blog post on that which I would invite you to check out. It's for this reason I want my content at the beginning of the year to be easier and more review-like in those first few weeks so they can become comfortable with my approach, which is different than most in my school. And since we have a flux of students all the time, maybe in any school they've ever been to. I, you know, in speaking with you, I truly don't know how much of what I do aligns with that of my peers. I'm just bringing you all this on a hunch. Yeah, insert wink emoji here. For example, I want my students to get used to experiencing that the learning intentions and success criteria I set forth to them really do match and reflect accurately my expectations for them during each class period. I strongly believe that the grace I extend to them in the early days of our relationship and the consistency I can work into my lesson plans and instruction does wonders toward building mutual trust and respect between me and a bunch of non-college-bound chemistry student teenagers. <laughs> so that's a big reason for why I structure things the way I do. For me, every piece of this, every element I'm sharing with you, is so much more than effect size and research-based. Um, 
the, it's always connected to also the personal experience because that is so important for my at-risk students. All right, let's go back to those learning intention success criteria for a minute. Let me read them to you one more time because I've even forgotten. Today I'm learning about the scope of chemistry as a discipline so I can talk like a chemist, understand the type of information I'll be learning in this course, recognize how chemistry impacts society. And success criteria, I'll know I'm successful when I can define terms on the word wall, match different types of chemistry to their uses, and explain how chemistry is critical to medicine, agriculture, material development, and the environment. Okay. So, did you notice how the very first bullet point of my success criteria aligned directly to the first bullet point of my learning intentions? I said, today I'm learning about the scope of chemistry so I can talk like a chemist. And success criteria, I'll know I'm successful when I can define terms in the word well. Talking like a chemist comes from being able to define terms in the word well and know what they mean. I can't be clear with you about how or why I began preparing these success criteria and learning intentions in such a complimentary way. This is not really outlined in the text. I can't explain it other than to say it just made sense to do that given what I understood to be the function of these partners. And they really are partners, learning intentions, success criteria. In this lesson specifically, they go on to complement one another. There are three bullet points for learning intentions and three corresponding success criteria. They'll understand the type of information they'll be learning, learning intention, and they'll know they're successful when they can match different types of chemistry to their uses, matching success criteria. Again, learning intention. They'll recognize how chemistry impacts society and success criteria. They'll know they're successful when they can explain how chemistry is critical to medicine, agriculture, material development, and the environment. A little bit more specific there, right? One thing I'll be clear about here with the success criteria is that while I am specific about what they'll be doing during active student-centered learning time in each lesson, I don't always get into the weeds with that. In this example, I write, quote, explain how chemistry is critical to all these fields. But during class time, explain can be represented by detailed writing, presentation preparation, actually giving the presentation. Maybe it looks like think, pair, share, and small group collaboration. It's these success criteria that you're going to differentiate, not the learning expectations or learning intentions. Since learning intentions are tied more closely to the standards, they represent content. And we can differentiate content, but I don't know. I don't want to ever shift that too much. The success criteria in my world, in my application of them, represents process and product. And these can most easily be differentiated based on learning styles or IEPs, whatever you need to do. Since we're all presumably science teachers here listening to this, I want to give one more example we can all relate to. This set of learning intention success criteria comes from my scientific method lesson. And this is the second lesson I deliver in my chemistry curriculum. Since I am to deliver a lab in every lesson, it's exceedingly important for me to review the scientific method with them as really a set of expectations they should have for class time each and every day of the forthcoming year. Here are learning intentions. Today, I am learning about the scientific method and using data. So I can. One, talk like a chemist. Two, understand the purpose for and differences between each step. Three, practice observing, testing, analyzing, and communicating for future in-class work. Success criteria. I'll know I'm successful when I can, one, define terms on the word wall, two, make thorough observations, develop a likely hypothesis, and suggest ways to test that hypothesis, three, graph real experimental data, 
And four, communicate results using race. So did you notice there, in this set of learning intentions, I use a verb, practice. And after that verb, I said practice, and I list four different steps of the scientific method. This is a why. This is the purpose for the lesson, for them to practice certain steps of the method so they can use it regularly in the future. And I'm explicit about telling them that. It's in my wording. It's on the board. They hear it from me and they see it for future in-class work. But my success criteria reflect the specifics of that practice. They will make thorough observations. They will develop a hypothesis. They will suggest ways to test the hypothesis. And in doing those things, they are satisfying the learning intention of practice, each of those things, right? Though they are accomplished independently during class time, it's during class time that I provide the individualized small group and whole group feedback in praise and redirection to ultimately steer them in the direction I want them to go throughout the year each and every day. Graphing in this lesson is also included as a specific verb and that complements a portion of, oh, it's the portion of the what. In my learning intention it says, today I'm learning about scientific method and using data, which I didn't use the word analysis anywhere in my learning intention or success criteria other than to say using data and then having them graph real results. And then finally, in this case, I specifically want them to communicate using race. Uh, restate, answer, cite, and explain, right? It's a writing strategy many students are familiar with because that's a writing technique we were using at my school. We are not anymore. You know, you know how those things go. Uh, last year, we adopted CER, which is Cite, Evidence, and Reasoning. Right? Cite evidence. Oh, hmm. oh, claim evidence and reasoning. That's what it is. And so I'll be talking about that through the year because I'll be living it and I actually love it. So any writing uh, strategy that includes evidence, I'm all over that because science is about evidence and explaining evidence and collecting evidence. And so I, I feel like it's totally our wheelhouse, even though it's reading and writing. Okay, and so there, there's probably partly a, a common core literacy standard incorporated into this lesson, which is a best practice, you know. I, it's not something I ever did before, going student-centered. But in so much as you need to collect what they know, oftentimes you are stuck with reading what they know, especially me as a cyber teacher. And I need to do it in split-second format, you know, during a period. Uh, I can't have, or it's not as easy to have quick actual verbal conversations with them about what they know um and I got lucky if if we consider it luck I don't know I kind of feel like I was just blessed with this whole this whole formula this whole lesson this whole approach because sometimes I revisit it especially when I talk to you guys and I just think like wow this really did all come together last year my school adopted this huge literacy push and it worked out that so much of what I do already complements our goals there. So uh, you're going to find if you're poking around ever in my store or my blog and you're reading about what I'm doing, uh, it's going to incorporate probably a lot of literacy because I think it's super important myself and, and I have to practice it a lot. I have to. So, you know, and one more thing to say about that. All, you know, if you want to take a good look at more of my learning intention success criteria, you can always go to my store on Teachers Pay Teachers. Actually, guys, my store on my website is active. <laughs> you will see a pop-up that says, excuse the mess. But it's totally functional. It's totally cool. Um, I'm getting there. All of my products are not represented just yet, but this is a super labor-intensive process to create my own store. And so I would love for you to go to my store, labineverylesson.com. I think it's slash shop. Or you could just go to my homepage, labineverylesson.com. In the top right-hand corner, you can click shop and you'll see all my products there. One reason I really wanted to uh, make a duplicate store in addition to my Teachers Pay Teacher store is because I have an additional level of filtering that I can do. Um, 
And also I can provide just loads of information in the descriptions in a, in a way that is uh, not intrusive, but also there for anybody who wants it. So what you'll find when you go there is that you can, you know, look at the pervasive principles unit, that introductory chemistry unit I was talking about. And then you can filter just for my digital notebooks or just for my interactive science lessons. Uh, eventually just for my bundles. Right now, the only thing missing from, well, it's not the only thing missing. <laughs> Let me tell you, here's another aside. My summer was supposed to be all about adding my other content that will close out an entire curriculum year. And uh, no, I have just gotten sidetracked with the marketing and the search engine optimization and and all of the things that will make me visible to folks uh, to be able to help them. And so hopefully in the month of August, I'll get to loading more lessons, but know that they do exist. Um, right now I have almost a semester worth of content there and none of the bundles are loaded in yet. So I'll be working on that. But I got way off the beaten path here. What I wanted to tell you, you can also go to Teachers Pay Teachers. I love them, they're awesome. Search for Lab in Every Lesson if you wanna do it that way and choose the category for just interactive science lessons. It actually doesn't matter because I list my learning intentions and success criteria at the very tippy top of all of my product descriptions, no matter which store you're looking at. And, um, I, you know, I think between the two of them, as we've discussed today, it becomes very clear. If you don't know what the lesson is about for my learning intention success criteria, then I haven't done a good job of being clear to students <laughs> uh, if you're not clear enough about what's in that lesson. Of course, I love to give you as much previews as I can, but I am one person and I have two hands and one brain. <laughs> I could be like, I could totally used to be just transformed into, uh, what's her name from Little Mermaid, you know, the octopus woman, queen, with eight hands and maybe two brains. I'll take two brains too, that'd be awesome. Uh, to get all this done, but right now it's a slow go. Anyway, if you want examples on how to craft your own learning intention success criteria, I know this is not the best uh, format for bringing that to you audibly, but you want to see them and you want to copy a bunch and use them as examples as you prepare your own, no matter what content you um, teach, even if maybe someone shared you this and you're not a science teacher at all. That's Coolio. Go there. Check them out. I love it. And I'd highly recommend anybody to, to adopt it. So, <laughs> so much for a boring topic today, huh? It turns out I can be enthusiastic about anything. I was totally dreading preparing this episode and I'm sitting here thinking, wow, I had a lot to say about this. <laughs> and truly, I can probably even say more. But I think it's probably time to close the book on this one today. Uh, and as always, there's a lot to digest here for you. So I want to close out with another quote provided by the authors of Visible Learning. In the book, they quoted a research paper from 2007 written by a Jay Smith entitled Sharing Learning Intentions. The quote reads, Writing learning intentions and success criteria is not easy because it forces us to really, really, really think about what we want the pupils to learn rather than simply accepting statements handed on by others. Chew on that. <laughs> know that as you sit down with, your, with a few of your own lessons in an attempt to hash this out, it doesn't necessarily come easy, especially if you've never thought much outside the standards box. When I write them, I write out a rough draft of my learning intentions. Then I seek out the technology I'll need for my learning experience, which I'll talk about next week, that will accomplish those learning intentions. Once I've identified that, I have a rough idea of one, what I want students to do with it. I revisit the success criteria and make my list. Then I'll use standards and quizzes and tests to sort of outline the success criteria that reflect the skill practice they have to master which is also an element in my formula. And I definitely revisit those learning intentions to consider if there's anything I missed with the final set of success criteria I've got. Remember, at the beginning of this episode, I called this element the glue that ties all 
of the other elements together. And indeed, it really is. So I call on you to challenge yourself this week to create one, just one learning intention success criteria set for an existing lesson. In doing that, remember to, number one, write your learning intention in the today I will learn about blank so I can format. Format doesn't really matter. You can make it a question, you can make it a statement, you can make it a list. Starting here made the learning curve a little less steep for me, and I think it could help you too. Number two, link your learning intentions to the standards. They should list the what and the why. And number three, do your best to create at least one success criteria for every learning intention, or be ready to defend why and how they are, in the words of our visible learning authors, demonstrably connected. As you get better, extend that challenge to incorporate this outline into every one of your lessons and see how your outcomes, how your learning, how your experience in the classroom is enhanced. That's the lab in every lesson way. If you're part of our free community, please share your efforts with the rest of us to get some valuable feedback. If you're not part of our free community yet, you can add yourself by visiting community. Uh, yeah, there's no www. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. It's just community.labineverylesson.com. From there, you can direct message any other member, including me. And I'd love to hear from you about how you're enjoying the podcast or any specific questions you might have that bubble up while in you while you listen. Next week, I'll talk about active learning experiences that are represented in our success criteria if we're preparing effective interactive science lessons for student-centered learning. And don't forget to download the entire guide that contains a summary and tips for all five elements I'm discussing in this month's podcast series. Just visit www.labineverylesson.com slash the number five elements. So slash five elements. And meanwhile, folks, keep experimenting because what you do and how you do it matters. Have a great one, guys.